Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Davnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron Grossman. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And we have a very special guest joining us for today's episode. We have Seth Zarati with us, returning from previously on our Fifth Element podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me back. Uh, my name's Seth, as you said. You can find me at Zarati on Twitter. Uh, we're going to let Aaron take it away with a classic Grossman summary. Thank you for that setup, Jason. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking about 12 Monkeys, the 1995 film directed by uh, Terry Gilliam. Um, based on the short film La Jete. Uh, I do not speak French, so sorry if that is a very bastardized pronunciation. Um, but yeah, 12 Monkeys, 1995. Um, it tells the story of James Cole, who is a prisoner in the year uh, 2035, um, living underground after a virus in 1996, wiped out approximately 99% of life on Earth, and then uh, you know, kind of drove humanity underground uh, as the world above ground was uninhabitable. Uh, Cole regularly has dreams of uh, him as a child witnessing a shooting at an airport, um, and he is chosen by kind of the vague authority figures in his present day um, to be transported back in time uh, in order to gather information around the spread of the virus and to help scientists understand what happened uh, back then and help develop a cure. Um, He is accidentally transported uh, incorrectly to the year 1990 instead of 1996, when he is pretty promptly placed into a mental institution and he begins to develop a relationship with a psychiatrist there named uh, Dr. Catherine Rayleigh, who begins to believe his unbelievable story. Um, this was a film that was kind of a kind of mid-career uh, film for uh, Terry Gilliam, came after The Fisher King, uh, which, you know, it came after The Fisher King, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Brazil, um, all films that were critically acclaimed. Most of them did well financially. Um, uh, they were, you know, kind of awarded or at least nominated for a lot of, uh, you know, Academy Awards and such. And this is a film that, that, you know, isn't a, uh, I don't know, it, it's emblematic of Terry Gilliam's, uh, films and that it is a kind of sci-fi film. It is very influential on uh, sci-fi that came after it. And, um, you know, kind of for me personally, I'm not like a Terry Gilliam expert, but I, a big Monty Python fan. Um, he was uh, the only uh, member of Monty Python who was not British. He was American. Uh, he was actually born uh, and raised in Minnesota. So go Minnesota. Are you uh, for real? Yeah. Born and raised in Minnesota, Minneapolis here. And then he lived uh, Minnesota Lake, uh, Medicine Lake, Minnesota, where he moved. Minnesota Lake. That, <laughs> that famous yes, Minnesota, Minnesota Lake, Minnesota. Minnesota. 
I don't know. Terry Gilliam of Minnesota Lake, Minnesota. <laughs> um, yeah, but he, you know, he's he's American and he he moved to Britain and uh, a lot of his experiences in America, specifically dealing with uh, the police here in America, dealing with what he described as like an authoritarian state growing up, um, really in- influenced his his films later in his life. I think there's hints of that in his animation. He was kind of the, the main animator for Monty Python. Um, if you haven't seen a lot of the animated skits from like Flying Circus, uh, go check those out. Um, but I think his films specifically, you know, 12 monkeys, for example, but also Brazil, they're often very anti-authoritarian. Uh, they have a lot of themes of dictatorships and things of that nature and And confinement kind of follows in that style. Yeah. So I guess just to start off, uh, you know, a discussion around that, I know that we're probably not all like massive Terry Gilliam heads here, but just to start out, I mean, did anybody kind of connect with that? This movie was a 1995 film. So. I think from a a comparison standpoint, a lot of people might compare this to like the Terminator, which came out about 10 years earlier. Um, What were kind of the thoughts there around those themes uh, while watching this film? Uh, Well, I don't know if we should go right into themes. Uh, You mentioned that it's based on La Jetée. Aaron fails to pronounce French and then says that he doesn't know how to speak French Grossman. Uh, But you didn't mention that. uh, I, I think it's probably vital to mention that this is actually like one in a series right in a in a, in a spiritual series of films i uh, no, wrong not to, not according to terry gilliam i mean yes I, uh brazil this brazil okay then, then then explain 12 angry men to me explain explain to me 12 men. years a slave explain to me oceans 12 or short-term 12 oh, explain 12 to me how those films number. exist in the same world 12 is divisible by six divisible by four divisible by three two all right i was making good jokes about the number 12 but you wanted to talk about the themes. Um, I must have missed those. I only caught the bad ones. Hey, Harry, <laughs> Harry, let's get this, dude. Come on, get my ass, you monkeys. No, I mean, th- this is... A lot of people often call this, along with uh, Brazil and... Uh, what was the last fucking movie he did that I can't remember the name of? A lot of people consider this part of a trilogy of his dystopian films. Um, he said that that wasn't intended. Uh, a lot of people thought it was intended and said that and... He's kind of ang- uh, zero theorem as a third film. Um, yeah, he, he's always kind of rejected that uh, framing of this film. But um, yeah, I think kind of very roughly, you know, thematically and plot wise, this does um, certainly with Brazil, which I think is probably his other most famous film, I guess, maybe Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, those are kind of the films that I think people think of when they think of Terry Gilliam. Sure. Am I wrong um, about that? No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong about that. I, I guess since you have some expertise, what do you see from his, like, point to specific examples of things that you see from his other movies that are comparable to this that show up here? I When when we were watching it, I, like, asked myself and you, like, why does everything look so steampunk? Why does everything look like it was harvested from a junkyard? I mean, one, it's because it kind of was, more on that later, but two, it's kind of because that's terry gilliam's vision of like dystopia of the future yeah i mean did you did you like that was that something that you liked or did it feel kind of ugly to you i guess i'll Um, respond i'll respond and give harry time to uh to jump in in a sec i ended up liking it at first it's sort of incongruous and annoying but the further you go into the movie again it's got like a very nonlinear structure um or at least mostly nonlinear. and the further it goes along the more it commits to that style and 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 the reasons it builds for having that style i think it came to i like i warmed up to it but at, at first i reviled at it uh i think you characterized how i 
think I felt about it pretty well. This is it's it's interesting, right? Because it's it's loud. It's a really loud directorial sort of artistic choice. Um, we just talked about Total Recall, and this movie, in a weird way, kind of reminds me of that movie in that it, it's a movie that is so that you can feel the director's guidance on so significantly, um, particularly in the set design and the. Um, camera movement and camera shots with the Dutch angles and the sort of skewed perspective, um, in, in all senses. Um, and at first that, that felt uncomfortable to me. Um, particularly I felt it robbed some of the realism of the, um, first act, uh, in the past. And then it ended up working for me really well. And it ended up making the themes of, of this movie sing, uh, for me better than they would have otherwise. And so it was, it was interesting to sort of retroactively understand why that palette, the sort of Tilly Terry, um, Gilliam approach was applied to this movie. Um, but it ended up working for me pretty well, I think, particularly in the present, which is funny because that was the problem that I had with it uh, to start. Sorry, go ahead, Cody. No, you're good. Um, I'm certainly not, as we sort of alluded to, I'm not a, a Terry Gilliam expert uh, or fanboy or anything like that. I'd seen Brazil at Trilon um, some time ago when they showed it, and I and I saw 12 Monkeys once before, maybe like five years ago. Uh, but on jumping into 12 Monkeys again, uh, when I rewatched it earlier today, I knew that I was watching something that Gillian directed. Um, because of similar staging that he put forth in Brazil, uh, when they're in the, the futuristic dystopia, um, specifically, I mean, that's where we start out. And there was this, this weird dynamic that uh, I tried to trace, and it eventually kind of fell away as we spent less time in the... In the in the future, but this interplay between the the fact that this this prison and the world surrounding the prison that Bruce Willis's uh, character is in feels really crowded. Um, there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, stuff. Uh, there's this focus on technology and and maybe the more accurate term is like gadgets, like gadgetry, and using that as a way of convincing us uh, of the the time and the place that we're in, um, and that was. So sort of annoying and off-putting to me, um, just, I, I guess, maybe the, the idea of clutter. Um, but I thought that illustrated um, some, it, it illustrated some things later on uh, that, I, that I think helped it or, or complemented the fact that, like, for example, the nature of time travel is an imperfect science. And that, lead, that you know, kind of uh, uh, appears in, in various points throughout uh, the rest of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, well, the first thing I noticed is that Bruce Willis is in this movie again. So I see why you invited me uh, onto the podcast. Um, this is this is the but, return of Bruno, uh, much <laughs> much as it is the return of Seth. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, Harry and Cody, both of you guys spoke to th- the thing that stuck out to me was uh, the Dutch angle thing, especially when. Uh, uh, James Cole is put into the mental into, uh, mental into institution for the first time. Uh, that stuck out to me, you know, like I became immediately aware of what was going on in the characterization. The other thing I noticed is just all of the sets, uh, even though parts of this film take place, uh, I believe at first in Baltimore and then Philadelphia, uh, were incredibly like enclosed. Everything was interior except for uh, 
you know, and even the exterior settings were all, you know, one block or one street or one plaza. Uh, and I just, I just thought it was interesting that, uh, for a dystopian film, uh, it never really sort of shows you what the dystopia is. It's always focused on this character and his immediate surroundings. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm really, really glad you said that because um, I think that that sort of drives at the heart of what really works for me about this movie. And maybe I'm like uh, Aaron, you alluded to. I'm not by any means a, a Terry Gilliam expert. Uh, I but but butchered his name a couple times uh, a second ago, uh, so that should show you. But um, the thing that really worked for me, the the sort of um, thematic uh, structure at at play in this movie that really works for me is about the weird nested confinement that happens in here. Um, and I think that's something that I would ter- characterize Terry Gilliam's uh, films at large as very concerned with. I'm thinking particularly about Brazil, but a lot of his other movies too. They're really fascinated with means of confinement and what it means to be confined and people who are confined. And in this movie, there are nested confinements, right? Like, like we open the movie with a guy who is imprisoned in perpetuity thanks to the um i think it's called the permanent emergency act in the future and all of these convicts are have no hope right except to go back in time and do the bidding of these overlords um who are trying to retake the future our uh the planet on their own terms and then as soon as um our our boy bruno um gets sent back in time james cole he uh he's placed into a mental institution and so we have a guy who is sent back in time and placed in another confinement and can only return to confinement. And I really loved the way that, that these dual confinements also framed fate and the future and psychology itself as competing and intersecting forms of confinement that, that are, um, that are trap in trapping these characters in, uh, plot construction and fate and sort of like eventualities. Um, it really sings with this movie's concept of fatalism um, and what it's interested in depicting in that sense. And I thought introducing psychology in general was a really fascinating way to play off of that um, psych- psychology as prison. I'm saying that Terry Gilliam's probably a really big Foucault fan. Um <laughs> basically i think kafka fan too certainly yes absolutely i mean brazil is the most kafkaesque movie right like ever uh anyway sorry go ahead jason you all sound very smart right now in a way that i really can't compete with but i just want to lend my voice to the uh the realization that like this movie harry you use the word nested confinements and like when you think about it the overarching plot and story sort of has or the narrative i guess the way that this story is put together uh sort of has that same or it operates by those same rules precisely yeah yeah where almost every scene or at least every introduction of bruce willis to a scene is like if we're assuming that 2035 is his present as it is you know he's a middle-aged man uh in 2035 and he's a middle-aged man through most of this movie uh, and he's just visiting other time zones. Those are sort of like he's he's sort of uh, potted into those time spaces uh, and and those places only to be pulled back out later once his once the overseers or whoever have sort of determined that he's done his job. Um, I want to uh, touch a little bit on the production design and like we, we we're tying it sort of to the idea of what what the movie looks like and how it's portraying its vision of the future. One thing that I read again, it's just Wikipedia research, but one thing that I read is that uh, and, and it helped me understand why I guess why initially it 
it through me and and eventually like worked for me is that most of the production design for the future and all those like enclosed spaces, the interrogation scenes and the prison scenes and stuff, most of the stuff just like uh, props and, and production design were thrifted. They were thrifted and flea market items uh, that for me, like once I thought about that, once I knew that piece of information and once I saw where the story was going and learned a little bit more about the lore of the background is that um, it like it, it goes toward building the world and showing that the people who are now in power in the present day, 2035, uh, like th- nobody was ready for what happened, right? Everybody, th- like things are just put together out of what existed. There's no like humanity hasn't caught up to anything. They haven't like surmounted any technological issues. Like every piece of technology that they have, they're trying, they're, they're having to retrofit. They're having to understand in new ways. Uh, I think Terry Gilliam like saw that as a source of, of uh, sort of dread for for like present day people, how technology will change and be used in the future and if, how it changes with us and how it doesn't. Uh, just like the longer the movie went on, the more I was drawn to that concept. Yeah. I mean, for me, Gilliam, um, you know, the thing about his films is that the aesthetic is kind of, and I'm not any sort of art critic, so feel free to shit on me here. But the, the aesthetic to me has always seemed like the lack of a unifying aesthetic, right? Like it feels like a massive hodgepodge of different elements coming together. Which yeah. Yeah. Is, especially I'm, when you're looking that's at fantastic, two different, yeah. uh, two different like, stories told through time. I think it kind of compounds in that manner. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of that scene or all the scenes, I guess is Bob Hoskins in Brazil. He's like a plumber or whatever. I, I'm forgetting who that character is, but in Brazil, there are like, it's a lot of like, again, sort of steampunky, but like sort of weird neo-futurist design to things like 1984 crossed with, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm failing to come like event horizon, like weird non-Euclidean design to things that that makes a lot more sense when you think about like how he envisions the future and how he envisions dystopia in general. This movie gets like it gets a lot clearer. I think this this is a movie that's that's really aided by an understanding of Terry Gilliam, which I'm I'm frustrated by because I don't have a great understanding of him. But like even on the Wikipedia page, it you can read more about him and about his approach to this movie, and it sort of informs it a little bit. Maybe do that after you watch the movie. Don't don't do it before uh, you watch the movie, in my opinion. But um, I'm really interested by the way that um, Aaron, you talked about that hodgepodge of technology and sort of histories competing and intersecting um, and building on one another. And that being the sort of the lack of unifying aesthetic being the aesthetic. I think that really integrates well with his approach to, and uh, like you said, dread about modernism. Uh, I would characterize this sort of um, to, to bring in a talking point from one of our previous episodes. This has a sort of um, almost Obayashi esque sense of being very interested in the way that these characters are constructing themselves relative to uh, histories and mythologies of um, of their time and place. Um, like a lot of modernist uh, work, I think it's really interested in thinking about how these people are thinking of themselves in relation to things, particularly in relation to technology, like Cody pointed out. Um, and that also integrates really well and is framed really well by this movie's insistence um, on exploring psychology and what psychology is. Um, at one point, um, uh, 
Catherine Madeline Stowe says that it's the new religion, right? And there's some sense in which that is the continuation of, uh, of these things that we're thinking about is like, this is another, it's another form of confinement and another form of uh, majority rule. Like uh, Brad Pitt's character, uh, Jeffrey, uh, I think it's Gonez says at at one point. Um, And so like, like the thing that we're always talking about the way that this movie's um, art and framing and shooting integrates well with with the message um integrates well with the script is is pretty on point here right in a in a way that um suggests um a really confident directorial hand in things um and i'm i'm really interested in thinking about those things uh go ahead aaron i'm sorry i didn't mean to talk over you yeah no problem i was just gonna say seth i'll i'll get to you in a second i was just gonna say that um yeah one of the one of the design points that's listed on wikipedia here so i don't know forgive me if it's wrong but um that is that the art department uh wanted to depict the world of 2035 using only technology from uh before 1996 right so they oh, were yeah. they were they were trying to depict a future uh that still looks very dated i think that ties into a lot of the themes right like the spoiler alert the big kind of twist at the end of this movie is that the kind of authority figures that have been sending Bruce Willis back in time have kind of been doing this as a way to ensure that the present remains the present. I mean, that's at least what's strongly implied there. Um, I think that that ties in a lot. You know, if you even Google Terry Gilliam animation, you, you'll kind of see a lot of those same themes um, in his animation, specifically with Monty Python. Um, you know, again, not an art critic. It's maybe a little reaching a little bit here, but a lot of his his visual style is kind of mashing up, collaging um, a lot of like very detailed, often kind of like it looks like cut and paste uh, yeah, you know, actual artwork, like the Statue of David, for instance, and putting it in a cartoony environment. And it kind of shows this general disrespect or at least like disregard for, you know, the authority of, of these canonical artworks and radical recontextualization, right. Which is, yeah, like maybe not radical. Approach. I mean, you know, most of yeah. the time the statue of David is farting and, and the way he speaks is by doing a little Pac-Man <laughs> the top of his head is like flapping up and down. Um, but yeah, uh, to a certain extent, yes, I would agree. Uh, Seth, what's up? Uh, I just wanted to touch on, uh, Harry's point about uh, psychology being the new religion, uh, which was referenced in the film. Um, I thought it was interesting that the, I guess, uh, while presented as, you know, this very sort of anti-corporate, anti-authoritarian structure, uh, at the same time, you see uh, the psychologist, uh, Rayleigh, Riley, I forget the pronunciation. Uh, I think it's Riley. Riley uh, and James Cole towards the uh, the third or the final act of the film. There's this point where they sort of cross paths psychologically where this uh, crowd sourced idea of what is right and what is sane. uh, She has to reevaluate that. And at the same time, you see James Cole sort of succumbing to this pressure this psychological uh, normativity and just like, Oh, you know, this idea is so radical. I must be insane. Uh, And then, you know, you see the plot resolve itself almost by them, you know, uh, in a role reversal. Yeah. She, that, that moment is kind of like her little 
Luke Skywalker in the last Jedi moment, right? Where she's like, we say things and then people believe them. And like, we, we, the, the, like the reason that people believe what we say is because we say it, we sort of like, we're operating in a space where nobody has authority. And so we've just claimed it. Um, of course the line, like, uh, psychology is the new religion. And she, and then she closes the, the, that little couplet by saying that she's losing her faith. Um, and through the movie, I, I wasn't sure from that moment where she like starts to doubt her position. I guess we're getting more into character driven stuff at this point, but like where she starts to doubt her place uh, in like understanding the world and understanding its people. Is she validated in that doubt in that concern? Or does the movie sort of like absolve that through its story and through like her interactions with, uh, with Cole? Um, I'm sorry. Could you, could you ask that question again? I, I don't know if I fully follow. She has like a crisis. Uh, it's literally a crisis of faith in her own words, right? About the place of psychology to handle problems like James Cole's. Does she have a re like in the end, is she right to doubt her, like her position, her faith in, in the science of psychology to, to address issues like that, like, like James Cole's. Oh, uh, I mean, I think so. I think that, um, it, it's funny that this is a, it's a very 1996 movie in, in some senses. I wonder if, or sorry, 1995. I wonder if, if targeting psychology in this way is, is maybe the, the, like the most responsible or best, uh, conflation, but he is, he is conflating, uh, in my mind, the, the psychological sort of apparatus uh, particularly in mental institutions, which are of course a uh, good target to a, a sort of like wider authoritarianism of culture and history where it, it's, it's assigning, it's saying that, that psychology as we understand it is actually a normative um, colonizing force rather than a uh, sort of medical force um, at all. It's, it's like, it's not about sanity versus insanity. It's about bringing people into the fold. There's a sense in which, uh, Jeffrey in the mental institution is the sort of trope of the enlightened madman, which I actually really kind of liked as an aside, because this, this whole movie, um, feels like a Greek tragedy to me, like very much so. And he was like straight out of a, uh, Greek sort of tragedy where he's like he's like the enlightened madman right and then even this movie uh has a cynical um opinion of, of where that character ultimately goes when he gets a taste of power but um i think her arc in this movie is coming to understand her sort of place in an authoritarian um apparatus right and so i think that that um although they don't that um, arc of hers toward that enlightenment doesn't actually culminate with victory, right? Because this is still a tragedy. Um, I think that, that she is very much um, validated in that, right? Like, I think the movie is saying that she's right to have that opinion. Like she's, she doesn't go insane, quote unquote, because um, he was telling the truth all along sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the film uh, kind of a, a thing that's brought up over and over again is the, the idea of uh, the Cassandra complex, which no, I'm not a psychiatrist, um, but it, it's the, uh, it's the, the idea of someone who is uh, given some knowledge of the future or a warning of what's to come. And they're unable to uh, convince people about what's going to happen. Right. It's so good. It's such um, a good framing device, dude. Yeah, Sorry. It's, I'm it's really go good. No, no, you're good. Um, definitely see La Jete, by the way, because uh, that movie or that short film does that even better. Um, but I, I really connected to that in this film. Um, you know, I think that this movie, 
two things. First of all, this movie feels more like a 1980s movie. I don't know if anybody agrees with that, but it feels much more 1980s than it does 1990s. Um, maybe because it, it feels so Terminator at times. Um, but also th- this movie feels kind of ahead of its time and that it is tacking, tackling um, themes of, you know, environmentalism. It is taking a look at uh, uh, kind of nuclear warfare, which is, it's obviously not ahead of its time in that manner, but it is, it is tackling how someone, you know, who comprehends the maybe arguable uh, inevitable end of mankind, you know, in the face of climate change, uh, nuclear warfare, what have you, and how that person who is having kind of uh, an understandable freak out uh, is unable to contextualize themselves in society. uh, And that, you know, as Brad Pitt's character says in the mental institution is a society that just tells us to keep spending more money to just keep going about our daily lives and to benefit the system. Uh, I had a quick question for, for just all you guys Uh, at the end of the film, uh, I believe I I had uh, subtitles on, so it labels the woman who is part of the, you know, uh, leadership of 2030, uh, 2035, the astrophysicist. Uh, But she uh, encounters the, the rogue virologist uh, who's planning on spreading the virus. uh, And she says like, Oh, I'm, I'm insure I'm in insurance. And uh, it wasn't until you guys brought it up that, she might be ensuring that the future we know the present that James Cole was living in comes oh, to pass. Shit. I thought yeah, for sure. it was, I thought it was the opposite that she was ensuring that the future would be changed. Uh, it was, is that just only my reading of it? I re- I don't un- really understand insurance. So take all of this with uh, like even just the concept of financially insuring one's health. But I, th- I sort of read it more cynically than that. Like she is, it, she is part of like the global elite of, of like the healthcare insurance industry uh, and was sort of like working maybe with that guy, with the rogue virologist to like promote the spread of a disease and maybe- I- yeah, I think I think Seth just uh, cracked this movie for me um, because that's absolutely what it is, right? She she was absolutely ensuring that she could maintain the power that she had in the future, and yeah. and uh, forcing that fatalistic time loop that uh, um, Jim found himself trapped inside of. That's like a hundred percent what it was. Very yeah. very good point, Seth. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a pretty great in in terms of like puns at the end of movies. I think it has to be up there, right? Uh, I, I don't think that it's supposed to be implied that her kind of past self had any knowledge of what was happening. But I think it's, it's very strongly implied that her future self uh, is kind perpetuated of perpetuated this, right? Yes, perpetuated it. And, and I think it's, you know, again, this is kind of ties into the, the critique of authoritarianism, but I think it is strongly implied. I mentioned this earlier, very casually, and, and I guess no one shot me down then. So hell yeah, I'll keep going with it. But I think it's very strongly implied that the people in power in the future are using uh, coal as a, a way to ensure that they remain in power, that the yes, structure is enabling itself essentially. Uh, and that, that integrates really well with what we see throughout this movie. This movie is, is continually asking the question, where are our apparatuses leading us? Where are our constructions? Be they psychological, uh, be they, um, government, um, be they sort of cultural technological, or yeah. historical or technological, exactly. Where are they putting us? And in this movie's answer to that is it's a death cult, right? It's literally about 
ensuring the end of the world because ensuring the end of the world uh, is what allows the prevailing authoritarian structure to maintain its power. Like there, there is only one way for this authoritarian structure to maintain itself in perpetuity, and it is the continued perpetual subjugation of the people beneath them. So, like speaking of this movie being ahead of its time, like hey, look at that! Look at what's happening. Definitely, I, like I think for for me as well, what Seth said really recontextualize because i was i was following the thread aaron that you laid down where you were talking about like how uh jim was meant to jim uh how james cole was meant to like ensure that their the the proliferation of, of the future that they wanted for you know corporate reasons essentially um but like i found myself right now thinking about this movie in in toto is like this makes a lot more sense this the, i i see where these pieces all fit together i think it might be and I hate to say it, but it might be Terry Gilliam's like directing style. That means moment plus the length of this movie. It's like two hours, 10 minutes long or something. Uh, I think moment to moment, it runs the risk of like, especially in 2020 feeling a little bit like, I don't know, like a street preacher just babbling about, I mean, literally the exact scene where, uh, where Jeffrey is in the mental, mental, excuse me, mental institution in 1990 and he's got all those like great one-off uh, one-liners about you know Neil pray eat before the before the you know television and you know buy insurance just like stream of consciousness type stuff. I feel like in those moments it risks losing me with like okay this is Terry Gilliam being a little bit sassy being like being a little bit clever thumbing his nose at society sort of thing uh, and sort of like being his his um his idiocracy his his uh, 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 his bowling for Columbine moment where he gets to just sort of jerk off be a liberal an ineffective liberal jerk off as uh as as jeffrey later says uh but in that moment like it risks losing me about losing the, the the forest for the trees sort of for me anyway um of like the larger story and the larger themes at play but talking about it later has really helped solidify i don't know if anybody else felt like uh, similarly I think spurned moment to moment i wasn't i'm sorry to interrupt you aaron well i'll come back to your point um I think that that's totally valid. I think it ended up working for me pretty well, but like, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, and, and wondered like anytime I see a, the mad men are actually the only sane ones sort of plot line. It feels preachy. Uh, this didn't feel particularly preachy to me by the end, but, uh, that's very understandable. Sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I can kind of tie that into what my point is that, and then I think that if I have one criticism of this movie, well, not one, there's a few things, right. But if I have one, large criticism of this film um you know and this is a film that i I like it a lot i gave it a four on letterbox i'm feeling i might even bump it up a half star just talking about it um but i i feel like this ties into um a criticism of authoritarianism that was very common kind of at the to me uh at the end of the cold war kind of right after the cold war ended that feels very um kind of one note, even it feels like it's completely divorced from any sort of economic criticism of uh, authoritarian structures. Right. <laughs> it feels like it is purely targeting authoritarianism and dictatorship from a political standpoint. Right. It feels like that authoritarianism is something that is kind of assumed to be uh, uh, a bad thing. And I, I assume that it is a bad thing as well. Um, but it feels like it, it is purely coming at it from a political perspective in the same way that a lot of like anti-authoritarian or dystopian works did. And that's something that's always bugged me about a lot of them. Um, did anybody else get that? Am I just. It's uh, it's it's totally a 90s comfort 
right? It's uh um sorry, you knew this was probably going to happen, but like whenever I'm watching a movie from the uh, from the 90s, I'm thinking about Francis Fukuyama's End of History. <laughs> Uh, and I think that this is a movie that uh, that actually disagrees with that really well in some ways, um, in particular because of the environmentalism to this movie and the idea of unsustainability, which was not really a thought that had entered a lot of uh, fiction at this point. Um, in, in with some notable example um, counterexamples uh, like this, but um, you're kind of right, right, in that there is the sense in which the the horror is that these that um, whatever we have now is something that's going to go on in perpetuity. And therefore, if it's bad, it's going to keep happening forever. I'm saying that this movie doesn't really escape from that very nineties sense of doldrums where it was just like, well, we've got it figured out and the way things are, the way things are going to be. And it's like, well, like in 2020, that's a weird thing to look back on. Right. Because now we're very much in the sense that it's like, actually everything's ending really fast all the time. Um, which is, which is what gives this movie's critique a little bit less of a um, maybe fangs than it should have. Um, but that's complicated in and of itself by the fact that this feels like an end of the world movie all the time, um, which is something that works really well for me. So I guess I'm of, of two minds about that. Um, but that's a really interesting point to bring up. Yeah, I mean, the idea, you know, the idea of the end of history is kind of predicated on... Oh man, I'm, I'm going to get up here, but it's predicated on this, like maybe even like Marxist idea of, of history being kind of a straight line. That's all driving towards a certain point. Right. And I think whenever you have uh, an apocalyptic dystopian movie like this, instead of the end point being liberal democracy, everybody doing pretty okay. The end point is complete destruction, annihilation. Right. Um, yeah. Which is great, but yeah, I mean, it's a great criticism. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to move the conversation a little bit forward. Uh, the perspective through which we see this movie is like somewhat omniscient, right? Like we, we do see, uh, we have scenes where James is not like at the center of them. We do have scenes where it's not, um, put together in, in such a way as to present like uh, his first person view of like the, the happenings of the story, but it is like, he's the main character. Um, one of my, uh, favorite moments of like where it ties that perspective to the main story um, is when I, I think it's when they, f I forget at what point, like what plot points proceed and follow it, but it's when they're in the uh, theater, uh, not watch not the one where they're watching. Sorry. The like rundown building. I just assumed it was the theater, but the rundown building where a lot of home, it's like a homeless encampment essentially. Uh, and you know, they get into a scuffle. He kills one of the guys, uh, one of the, one of the people camping there, uh, and Rayleigh says uh, she like she notes that dear God you killed a man because he like stomped on his neck and brutally murdered a man, uh, and he says all I see are dead people, uh, which it's you a know, great moment, line. It, it is a great line, but then it, you know, and it doesn't take a whole lot of thought, but with a little bit of thought, it's like he is speaking with the perspective of somebody from twenty thirty five, where literally five billion people, ninety percent, ninety five percent of the world's population, it says. Are, are dead from a thing. So like even in the life, like it's that mentally divergent concept, right? Being of two minds, uh, you know, just split through time. Uh, he's seeing, even as society goes along, he's just seeing the death and destruction and, uh, you know, the, the, the raised earth that follows, uh, you know, this catastrophe of 1997. 
Uh, that's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That reminded me of my favorite line or the, the line that hit me the hardest. Um, and maybe this is a place, uh, a good place to talk about this. We don't necessarily have to dwell on it, but, um, watching this in 2020 was a real trip, uh, for me at one point. Um, he says, uh, I want the future to be unknown. I want to be a whole person again. Oh yeah. And, uh, God, that's th- a good line. It, that fucking really crushed me <laughs> this time around because it's like, Oh yeah. Like that's a, uh, that's fucking very much what I would like also is like, I would like for my future to not be uh, pretty well known. And I would like to be able to have a future where I can be uh, a person that I want to be instead of like either some sort of revolutionary or a dead person. <laughs> But much like uh, much like Jim, I am disempowered from that future becoming a reality ever because of the way things are now. Um, That was uh, I I think that that a lot of elements like that really work for me in this movie, particularly the fact that we sort of um, although Jim's the main character, there's a there's a weird sense in which um, Madeline uh, Stowe's character, Kathleen uh, Rayleigh or Riley is the POV character because we sort of come to see the world through. actually i don't know it's interesting it's both of them right because of their inverse uh fascinating character arc but like at first even though we know the truth of things we sort of see present day the way that that present day should be seen or the way we would see present day but then by the second act we see it as the near apocalypse that it is uh we see the ruins right and that really worked for me and that's sort of as she's starting to see the world as the apocalypse that it is but at that point uh jim is also doubting himself right so there's a really i really love that uh that parallel uh go ahead oh i was just gonna say like uh, some of that, some of what you're saying about their interactions and whose perspective we're seeing things from gets, gets me thinking about like the actual relationship between James and Catherine in this movie. Uh, because like they, they obviously go for, um, you called it like those inverse, yeah, you didn't word, use the word inverse, but sort of those inverse, uh, characters or character arcs where she comes to, you know, believe him more and more based on a hunch. And uh, he comes to um, sort of like level down with her about like understanding what's real and sort of taming that 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 confusion, that existential dread that he's feeling as somebody from the future sent to the past. Um, But I just don't know, like in terms of like the development of their relationship, the development of them as characters, I think is pretty strong. The development of their relationship that's like it has to be romantic, it has to exist is like. It's sort of almost to me, it came off as sort of like a clumsy Tarzan and Jane thing where it's like, here's the thing that puts them together. It's her scientific interest in, you know, something that he's a part of that he might be a part of. Um, And then uh, and his, you know, uh, under like desire for, uh, you know, for to have the ship righted and to have his psyche repaired is what drives him to her. I don't know if those motivations really like worked for me and i don't know if they stuck out to anybody else either or if they just were too like too well plotted and paced to, to to matter to anybody else you said tarzan while we were watching it and i was like what the fuck are you talking about it actually makes sense now that you're explaining it this is like a weird time traveling tarzan story yeah like i mean not exact parallels but yeah that, that just that overarching um sort of that archetype of you know an, a, an expert at something and somebody who would be a, the perfect subject to study it, you know, in that respect, you could say that like Harry was saying, like 
that's why I think it's a juggling scenario of like whose perspective, whose story is, is this clearly it's Bruce Willis's story because he's the main, main character and stuff. But the, like, and actually telling the story and actually like developing its themes through the people, uh, through, through its characters. That's why it gets a little, a little muddier for me, but like the, the relationship at the heart of it, I don't know if that, I don't know how big a concern that is, but I don't know if it really worked for me. Does anybody else have thoughts? I think about that, that I think that that's a pretty big concern. I think it did end up working for me, but I agree with some of your reservations. In particular, the fact that it had to become romantic uh, feels forced and kind of gross to me. Um, go ahead, Cody. Um, I I guess my gripes about the development of their those the, the two lead characters and the relationship with each other. Um, you know, the, I, I think framing it as their arcs becoming inverses uh, of one another, essentially them kind of flipping the switch and, and taking up each other's, or taking the opposite's uh, beliefs, that, I, I didn't like how that was paced. Um, I, I guess you know, marking it an hour and a half in, uh, uh, Madeline Stowe's character was still firmly in the camp that she was at basically the start of the movie. Um, which led to her being framed as as baggage uh, for for James Cole as he's off, you know, doing the. Thing. I mean, she poor Madeline still gets locked in the in a trunk, um, and then it, it feels like all at once, um, you know, Cole has his uh, his necessary revelation, and then uh, at sort of at the same time, uh, but in a different year, uh, Doctor Riley. You know, she she starts to to see things a bit more clearly. I felt that could have been maybe paced a little bit better. I don't know if that's just a pedantic um, feeling of mine, um, but that's I guess that is the thing about the relationship that stood out to me in, in a bad way. Yeah, I don't know that it's pedantic. Like for me, the more that I hear us talking about, you know, the interplay of the characters and their positions in like in time and how those play off of each other. There, there are a lot of parallels drawn in this movie. Uh, one of the things that I, I don't know how strong it is, but I think it was pretty clear was this uh, news story that keeps playing in the background um, about the kid who's trapped in a well, who ends up, it turns out to be a hoax uh, where, you know, uh, dozens of people, dozens of uh, law enforcement officials have, have tried to rescue a child from a well and they end up using a monkey to send uh, down with a camera and a sandwich to at least keep the kid alive a little bit longer. And then it turns out to be a hoax. The kid was just hiding in a nearby barn. It's one of the symbols that like uh, uh, James knows how that story ends. And that's one of the things that he clings to is like, I am from the future. I know that I'm from the future because of this until it starts to get undermined by the influ- partially by the influence of, uh, of, of Rayleigh as like trying to snap it back to quote unquote reality and, you know, an understanding of the real world. Uh, but like the, the parallel that it draws there with, um, with, I, I guess if you're just looking at it from a very like fil- film class perspective is like, James is the monkey, humanity is the child, and then that once that like once that whole rug is pulled out from underneath of it, where does that leave like all parties involved? Uh I guess that's why like as symbols, as elements of their times, James and Catherine work as like people who come together and form a romantic relationship, they did not for me. Um, I think I agree with the romantic thing. Um, I don't know if I agree with the pacing because I actually, I think that just because of the um, sort of thematic um, 
stakes of what they're trying to establish that relationship. I like that it only comes together in the very end because coming together in the very end is such an act of sort of like terrible fatalistic uh, revelation where like to, to accept uh, that Jim is telling the truth is to accept a very desperate, very bleak understanding of the way things are. And you don't want to accept that. Um, and so the the sort of like terrible gaslighting and the way that the apparatus creates the doubt that feeds on Jim really worked well for me um, and really made the authoritarianism of the movie sing for me. Uh, this is this is a movie that is that is talking about the way in which we label anyone as who has an alternative um understanding of the history of events and the consequent sort of conclusions that you take consequent conclusions that you take away from from your understanding of things that is alternative from the mainstream as neurodivergent right like we, we literally think that if people don't think that things are fine they're insane that's what the movie's sort of saying um or that's that's the metaphor that the movie's operating with and this is a movie about um about uh, Catherine coming to realize that that's not the case and that, in fact, this guy knows what he's talking about and that, in fact, those alternative understandings um, are valid. Um, and that's kind of why it works for me is that like it that the um, the arc of her character arc is the story of the movie or at least the story that the movie wants to impart on us. Like we're supposed to come away having moved from point A to point B in the same manner that she does. Um and it, it also makes the bleakness of the ending work really well, where it, it's like accepting that that you're disempowered uh, and, and that sort of drives home like how urgent and terrible all of this is, like how quickly we have to change our paradigm. Um, and that that made sense to me. But I don't know. I don't know if it worked for you guys the same way. I mean, I think it worked, but mostly because the like the structure of the film in terms of its plotting though I do think it might be a little bit overplotted, uh, it more or less works like near the end, the, the film climaxes with like the eve of, uh, you know, of, I forget the term, but basically the eve before the virus is released, like the movie ends with the implication that nothing changed, that it's, that it's a, a loop uh, in time. Um, I think, I think that's the only thing that like, because I could see it in the overall structure of the film, because at like our, uh, one and 49 minutes, I could see, wow, we've come all the way here. And this is like the moment, the climax, um, like these things were so intertwined as they went, even when I didn't think they were, uh, I just like on a very, are these people realistically supposed to be like entangling romantically didn't buy it. Uh, that's just a very personal, like concession, I guess, to things that I wasn't jazzed about in the movie. Uh, Seth, as our resident Bruce Willis, uh, as our resident Bruno, you know, are we going to let, let's 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 talk about um, where this falls on in like iconic Bruce Willis roles where he seems like he has no idea what's going on and he's bloody most of the time. Uh, first, I want to call out uh, this is all a this was all just a ruse to get me to see more Bruce Willis films where there is uh, male nudity. Which thank you, uh, well shaped nineties. Hey, hey, a lot of man ass. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, at first, I wrote that down in notes. I'm like, maybe this is a thing, like him being washed. But uh, if you guys were <laughs> able to find a thread there, please. I, uh, I think we. Know. I think we could probably. 
I did. I think we could get Harry talking about um, about how so he's washed when he leaves and he when, yeah. when he returns when he gets when he gets to the past he's washed just just let's 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 go down this little yellow brick road he is washed when he gets to prison uh or at least to the uh asylum when he's back in 1990 he's washed when he gets back to 2035 uh is and he is literally a christ figure in this movie uh, what is what is the significance? There? Remember also that in the first act, his his washing is forced, uh, and in the second act, he begins to understand his smell. He tells her that that he must stink, and then near the third act of the movie, he actually takes a shower for the first time of his own volition, and so he's sort of seizing the authority of bathing from his pressures. He is sort of creating his own autonomy. He is sort of building his own interiority as we go. And yeah. he is, he is bared each time. He is, he is born anew every time that he's washed. Uh, he is, he is, he, he is, he is Christ exponential. He is made new multiple times. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, bit of a different take here, but I think if you, if you think about it, he is washed when he comes back when he is in the authoritarian future and he's washed when he's in the authoritarian structure of the mental health facility. That's right. I think that this film is saying that washing is a tool of the authoritarian state in order to. Oh no, it's a slightly greasy guy. Take. If you think about it, we'll wash all that out with sweat. We have oils. We don't need to shower. This is what I've been trying to. Uh, Aaron is selling some perfumes and deodorants of his own making on the Trilove website. You can't uh, so you, you I will like get the word out. You do not need to sh- wake up, sheeple. Uh, I think it's a lie. Yeah, you know what? But 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 seriously, when you when you think about it, uh, you see like two different men's asses in this movie. A few times each, right? You see uh, Bruce Willis's ass twice when he's bathing. You see um, Brad Pitt. Uh, it's it's. You see Brad Pitt's ass, and I, th- I, I thought it, I thought it was funny. I'm pretty sure they made a special pair of pants or did something to make sure that the front didn't come down because he yanks those suckers down like mid thigh at least, jumps all around, and they do not. He's fudge. really good at that. That's a he thing that re- he does in movies. Like I remember distinctly, like <laughs> like halfway down his pants, ass Brad Pitt a couple of times. Uh, yeah, it's, I, it's like the Brad Pitt eating thing. <laughs> this is number two. It's like it's like food coming in, food coming out. Those are the two. Different master of his body. What, yeah. what can you say? Uh, Seth, he has built his own autonomy. Seth, how would you how would you rate this in terms of like uh, n- nude Bruce Willis? You know, you got like Fifth Element. You know what I mean? You, you got a <laughs> bunch of movies with nude Bruce Willis. Is this up near the top, or what do you think? Uh, I gotta say, it's it's probably you know seventieth percentile for sure in terms of uh, in terms of Bruce Bruce nudity. Br- br- nudity. I'm I'm not gonna try and put those together. What is the movie where he's uh where you see his ass when he's in a hospital gown? He's got like the backless hospital gown. Is that? It's Metal Gear Solid Five: The oh, Phantom uh, Pain. <laughs> is that? I believe that is in uh fucking. Oh shit! What movie is that? Six is that not, yeah. No, uh, no not, not Split Glass. What was the Unbreakable? Does he not have that in Unbreakable? I think it is Unbreakable. Okay, I'll I'll do research. I'll come back to you with more information. <laughs> more like Uncheekable. One other tie that I want to make to the rest of his career. I don't know how many more like takes we have. Uh, I think Bruce that my opinion of his. I don't. I don't know. I, I know that my opinion of this movie has changed. I was going to give it a three, like a three out of five uh, on oh, Letterboxd. I, th- I think it's. I think it's probably inched up at least to a three five, probably a four. If I think it'll it a little too long. But uh, I one, I think it's too long. 
Two, I want to make sure that nobody misses that that line that I mentioned earlier. Uh, All I see are dead people. This was 1995. 1999 Yo, was, yeah. was the sixth sense. That that. I I don't see a world in which no nobody else has noticed this, but it's the first thing that slammed through my head was the fact that Bruce Willis is in two movies where people talk about only seeing dead people. That's and it is also too long, completely unrelated. I think it's I think it's too long. I think it's sort of earns that by the end, but I I think I remember why I remembered so little about this movie from my first watch, you know, a number of years ago, and it's because it's just so damn long. It is it's very it is long. a longy. I think uh, this is uncharacteristic of my usual opinion, but I think it kind of the the length of this movie works for me because it gives it this real feeling of like an epic to me, um, which which integrated well with my um, sort of like Greek tragic takeaway uh, here. I just I really liked living in this epic story, especially when I could see the um, the construction of this story and where it was going. Um, I ended up feeling much like. Um, the two main characters, uh, James and Catherine did by the end, especially in that, that great vertigo scene where it was like, I, I felt disempowered and like, I was, I was powerless to stop, uh, where this movie was headed. Um, because I had sort of just sort of like read, um, the, um, the sort of foreshadowing and knew what was going to happen. Uh, and so I, I guess I liked that about it. I liked the, um, the sort of pain of, um, making that experience as long as it, it could be. Um, but, but that's understandable. Uh, we can talk about the, the last couple things that worked for everybody, but uh, I want to hear everybody else's takes. You know, what worked for me, Christopher Maloney. I, that was in my note. Literally the two notes I made were uh, three Dutch angle. Uh, Bruce Willis's ass is in this a lot. And, Christopher Maloney pre SVU. Listen, any movie where Christopher Maloney is in and we've established male nudity is a thing like we've allowed it and it's plus two hours. You have no excuses for not showing me Christopher Maloney's bare ass. Okay. My, I mean, my take on Chris Maloney. Uh, I don't know if this is, this is completely off base or anything. He was not in the movie or in the uh, video game LA noir, but he looks like he was. Do you know what I mean by that at he all? Like or a really I, period piece, like detective. You know what I mean. Just, like, his yeah. face looks like it was created by Team Bondi to put into that video game. So that <laughs> he you looks could like he visited. He, he looks like he visited Team Bondi for the Game Informer cover story in 2011. <laughs> was I, just thrown into the game. I want everybody to go to Christopher Malone. Is it Maloney or Milani? It's Milani. It's Meloni. Melani? I don't Who know. Who are you? I, I want everybody to go to his Wikipedia page. The picture of him is it like a, a San Diego Comic Con International rules, <laughs> dude. Wearing the fucking looking hat. For he's he's wearing and I I, I I want to use two exact words, very specifically chosen words to describe what he's wearing here. It is a denim fez. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like a it's like it's like Chris is wearing a kufi for some reason. At San Diego Comic-Con International. <laughs> My man looks that good. Personal right? life, make sure. He really does. Is what I, uh, doesn't say anything I, about it. So yeah, he's wearing a koofy. I'm I'm a big fan of Christopher Maloney, and he plays pretty much exactly Elliot Stabler in this movie. Uh, but like, good good for him. Good for him. He's been doing this a long time. He's he's earned he's earned that re- that retrospective praise. He deserves a few classic movies under his belt, right? It's a wonder to me that Christopher Maloney has never had like the like leading role in uh svu is 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 huge obviously but like he hasn't had one movie where he was like the the lead romantic heartthrob that 
that really like blew up at the box office. You know, he was in Harold and Kumar, which he was a goofy, you know, stereotyped character there. He's in this new show, or I guess he was in the new show, Happy, where he was, where he's sort of like the crazed uh, comedic detective character. I, I think it's a fun show. But like he hasn't been, like he hasn't had his, I don't know, Channing Tatum moment or his Chris Hemsworth moment. And he's not beyond it. He could still be it. Bro, he's, he's still got it. years old. He is absolutely he's still got it. that moment. I mean, look, no, all respect to Chris. Ball. We need creepy guys, dude. We need creepy guys. That's just all there is I mean, to it. Yeah, I guess we do. His head is very rectangular and his eyebrows are very arched. He just but looks like, like a good detective. He looks like a good cop, like a good dude. He looks no such thing, bro. No such thing, like bro. A, he looks like a good guy with a gun. He looks like a good guy with a gun is what he looks like. Uh, what What were the other notes other than Chris Maloney? Dutch angles. <laughs> files, yeah. A lot of Dutch angles in this film. Specifically in the mental institution. Um, it works. I, yeah, I, I I don't know. I think that's all. All I think that was literally all of my notes. Um uh, well, we still go- have one more person who has yet to give us the noties. A certain Cody's noties. noties. Wow! Thank you for that, uh, that nice musical number. Um, to do pulling out my noties here. Uh, I missed the uh, the trilon and basically every movie theater in this time of COVID mayhem uh, when I saw. This movie house showing a fucking Hitchcock marathon. Um, I initially, I initially got pretty upset that um, the the two leads were talking up a storm in the middle of Vertigo. Uh, but the best scene in Vertigo too. It, pretty good. Uh, and then I don't know. One of my favorite moments in Twelve Monkeys, uh, very on the nose, but when. Um, Doctor Riley put the uh, the blonde wig on, and she has that turn. And then that vertical musical cue hits. Yeah, uh, that that's the song, The Past and the Girl. Um, sorry to interrupt your notice, Cody. Uh, I noticed that too. That's like, I think, my favorite piece of uh, film music. That that particular song might be the, my favorite piece of like a film score ever. And it, I, w- I was just like, I was freaking out about it. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Jason, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, so that in particular, remember your notey, but that in particular, uh, the Redwood scene from uh, Vertigo, when it, uh, that appears in La Jetée too, right? Like almost that exact same thing. And I just want to point out that La Jetée actually may have taken that from Vertigo because Vertigo came out in 58, La Jetée was 62. So La Jetée is, a, yeah, it's a direct reference to that scene. All, all movies are just the same movie, just uh, made by different people. Uh Harry's Noti nested within Cody's Noties, much like nested confinement in 12 Monkeys. I've been to the place that that scene takes place in, Mere Woods. What? I've been to that exact uh, sign that they look at, uh, which Shit. is pretty rad, because that's yeah, one of my favorite scenes. Uh, I think, yeah, maybe somewhere. Can we use it as the art for this podcast episode? Uh, if I can find it. Awesome. Good. Cody, I have Noties once you're done. Please cool. continue, Cody. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the only other thing, um, it has been said to death, uh, see La Jete. Um, it is uh, just under a half hour long. It rules. It is on the Criterion channel. You can also get it on Amazon if you feel like doing that. Um, on, Criterion, uh, on the Criterion channel, they have an English version and a French version. Um, and for the, or I guess I'll just read the description that's on the site. 
Chris Marker, the director, created unique English and French narration tracks for La Jetée and prefers that the film be experienced in the language the viewer is more familiar with. The different tracks are not direct translations of each other or sync to the images in exactly the same way. Um, only wanted to say that in full because that rules and that it seems to be from a filmmaker who has a lot of love for what he created. Uh, so that's super cool. Um, La Jetée feels good uh, to me both. I mean, I'm slightly biased here. It feels good both as a 12 Monkeys and even the Terminator, as it's been mentioned, sort of complement, uh, but also as a standalone work. Um, presumably you're listening to this if you have seen 12 Monkeys, uh, but if for some reason you haven't, don't feel discouraged. Uh, La Jetée rules regardless of you know, what you may have watched, whether it's you know, 12 Monkeys or not 12 Monkeys. Yeah, Jason and I watched it just on Vimeo. I guess we should have checked other sites for probably a more high def version. Ours was definitely a little, a little fuzzy, let's say. Um, but we had a so did the version you watched. We had a uh, French audio track with English subtitles. So did you did you have one with an English audio track? Yeah, mine was um, yeah an English audio track. The there's text at the beginning that is in French, but it's basically um, I don't know if it's uh, the director or somebody else who he brought on to to do an English narration. But yeah, the, the speaker was in English. Um, there's no French audio. Okay, because I, I was going to say that uh, we watched the version, yeah, French audio track, English subtitles. Um, I thought there were a number of lines, uh, you know, at least from the, the English translation. I don't know if the, the subtitle track was based on the English language or the French, but there are a lot of lines in this that were extremely striking, like very, very good. Um, there's one that's describing after kind of the, the version of World War III in the film, where uh, the film says the victors stood guard over an empire of rats. And I was like, fuck, yeah, no. that's cool as shit. Um, and then they're also explaining how time travel works and why they're they're picking this person who have a, has a vivid uh, memory of a, a woman from uh, like another time. And uh, they say uh, the film says if they were able to perceive or dream of another time, perhaps they would be able to live in it. Uh, Bro, I know. I was just like, this is like poetic ass shit. That's dynamite! Holy yeah. shit! Um, yeah, definitely. You see, La Jete. It it is twenty eight minutes long. That it feels very very short to me. Um, I definitely worth watching. I, I had a great time watching it. I, better than Twelve Monkeys, I'll say. Although I like Twelve Monkeys a lot too, but La Jete is uh, really really good. Aaron, did you say you speak French? We, oui. no, I, I don't speak French. Uh, I'm going to leave the floor open then for any final notice, any last thoughts that anybody had uh, before we go into some quick recommendations, because I feel like we each might have some. Harry, you got notice? Sure. Uh, I don't have notice. I was just going to sort of summarize going off of that line, uh, what works for me about this movie, I guess, just as sort of my final thoughts. Um, you had said that that in La Jetée, they say um, if they could conceive of another world, perhaps they could live in it. Um, that really drives at the heart of, of anti-authoritarian messaging that works for me in this movie and in movies like or um, literature like 1984 that works for me really well. Uh, the thing about this movie that works for me really well is it really like aptly demonstrates how things we think of as fate or as inescapable or as uh, the, the natural course of history are actually things that are controlled and um, carefully constructed by authoritarian states. Um, it's sort of like the, I think it was Ursula K. Le Guin who said that like capitalism feels inescapable, but so yeah, did the age of Kings. Um, that works really well for me. This idea that fate isn't fate. It's something that is authored by an authority and it can be unauthored um, or 
it, it might be difficult. You might be disempowered. Um, and, and also just the, the way that they illustrate the mechanism of, of how authoritarianism perpetuates that, uh, unequal construction, which is through gaslighting and through doubt and, and through making you believe that your narrative of self and of history is not true and can't be true, um, because you're insane or you're, uh, psychopathic or, or what have you, the way that this movie shows it, the, the way that it subjects Jim to, to believing that he might not know the things that he knows and he might not be the person he knows he is, et cetera. Um, that's a really good, really striking, powerful metaphor that other anti-authoritarian, um, literature and film have used. Um, I think it's particularly apt for the nineties, um, as a reaction to the end of history, the bleakness of this movie's message, particularly in the nineties really works for me. So yeah, like overall, I think this is a really great companion piece to a lot of that stuff. Um, and I think it works really well and I'm probably going to watch a lot of other Terry Gilliam, um, movies because that really, uh, that worked for me. Yeah, I will kind of piggyback, make one pretentious comment and then do one or two notes here. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think what worked for you also worked for me. Um, you know, I, I am reading because my fiance gifted it to me. I'm reading, uh, the origin of capitalism, which Look is at this guy. Yeah, I know. I, I dropped in the fiance thing. I dropped in, I'm reading a book, which is like, come on. I have not touched this book in like a month. I need to get back to it. I've not been productive in my quarantine time, but, um, no, yeah. The origin of capitalism by, uh, Ellen, uh, Mikeson's wood, which is about how a lot of our current economic thinking about capitalism is viewing it as an endpoint that all the other forms of, uh, you know, structuring the economy before this were kind of leading up to capitalism and how that is kind of the dominant thought, uh, specifically among like a lot of, uh, the main economic thinkers, let's say, uh, it should also be noted that that is in part what the end of history is about, right? Is, is positing that actually the end point of history, Marx thought it was inevitable for history to lead to communism. Uh, Fukuyama is saying that actually like neoliberalist capitalism is the proper end point of history, right? So that that's integrated. Sorry, Aaron, go ahead. Am I gone? That, and then also kind of a recommendation point, also Capitalist Realism uh, by Mark Fisher. Uh, which is a book about uh, how our current entertainment uh, or the current economic system we're living in, but specifically how entertainment is created in capitalism uh, posits that, that capitalism is the only system that, that could exist and that most 99% of the media that we kind of consume uh, is unable to imagine a world where that is not the dominant system. Like there, there's very little, even sci-fi and fantasy that is about any other system existing um, and how that is kind of purposeful. So yeah, uh, I would recommend that. Uh, I will say from a notey standpoint, uh, real quick, uh, costume designer, Julie Weiss was nominated for her, uh, costume design work in this film, uh, at the Academy Awards. Uh, Brad Pitt was nominated for best supporting actor lost to Kevin Spacey for the usual suspects. I would like to put forward since Kevin Spacey is, uh, rightfully canceled. Uh, Brad Pitt should just kind of be gifted this, right? Like he, right? Like this counts as his first one. Anybody else disagree with that? I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with that. You're comfortable with that. I like. I like. His- uh, I like his performance a lot too because I think that uh, which is this is sort of ironic. I like Brad Pitt as an actor a whole bunch. Um, this is still a very '90s performance of like, hey, let's get the super hot, super like well-known actor to act crazy, and it'll be wild. And sure. he's acting against type, and that kind of sits wrong with me. Yeah, Fear and Loathing has a, obviously that's a bit more autobiographical, but that has kind of a similar thing, I think. 
I think I think Brad Pitt's movies, like his roles. I don't know if Seth Seth has more experience generally with uh, movie stars of the '90s and early 2000s than I do. Uh, but I think every time that I see Brad Pitt on screen, it works better for me if I forget that he's ever been in any other film. If I just divorce what I'm watching from the rest of his filmography, I feel a lot better about what I'm seeing on screen at that moment. If that makes any sense. You're saying you don't like Brad Pitt. Is that kind of basically it? I don't know. I mean, did I say something and then not realize that I said it? I can play the tape back. I, mean, I didn't say are that. You saying that that your perform his performances are not entirely convincing. That he's not just playing himself. You know, in the same way that people say about no. George Clooney. No, I just like. I mean, I mean that in part, I guess. But I also mean that if I if I imagine that he is like that, this is his defining role, the one that I'm watching. That this is like his thing. I feel better about it. Like if I see him in 12 monkeys and I think it's a really good performance, it's, it's like great. But then I remember that he was in 12 years a slave and I think, Hmm. I, I forget where I read it. Uh, and this is terrible because it really shifted the way I look at Brad Pitt. Uh, but I read that Brad Pitt is a character actor stuck in a leading man's body and watching films with that sort of perspective has helped me come to terms with uh, with how I feel about Brad Pitt. Um, okay. I like I like that, except that what they're saying is that he is both hot and a good actor. Uh, <laughs> essentially, what that means is that, like, oh, he he's a leading man because he's hot. He's a character actor because he can act. Well, <laughs> but actually, the, the way I interpreted it was like when you think of character actors, I guess acting in bit parts, they they are not people that should narratively carry a film uh you know they, they are there to you know propel a narrative to impart a, per, a certain perspective but they're like not flavor. right but they're not the lens through which the audience is supposed to experience the take. film yeah and so you know things like this uh you know i i guess you know when you see him play more of a character and less of a oh here's brad pitt uh, seems to work out well, at least for me. Aaron, what do you think? Uh, I was just going to say, I, I jumped over to Brad Pitt filmography on Wikipedia. His first credited appearance, well, it's, it's uncredited, but the first appearance listed is in the film Hunk, and his role is Guy at Beach with Drink. <laughs> that's what, that's how I'm trying to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, to be Brad Pitt cast as Man on Beach with Drink. Oh, just Guy on Beach with Drink is fine with me. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, Brad, uh, not Brad Pitt, uh, fucking Bruce Willis's whole thing in this movie is that he's never seen the ocean and he really wants to see the ocean and the outside world. Is this a quarantine movie? He is stuck underground. hundred percent, dude. This is a quarantine movie. Okay. This oh, yeah. And with yeah, uh, coronavirus, uh, try love theme. Glad to hear that. You came up with the theme and you can't even say it. Yes, it is. Of course it is because it's about a virus that is that wrecked the world that changed how people lived. And and one man's, I guess, quest to try and fix it and fails. I mean, it's not a hopeful quarantine movie, but it is one. And it's an anti-capitalist movie, which is the secret theme of both Try Love During Quarantine and Try Love in general. <laughs> That's true. Hashtag Jeffrey was right. Do we have uh, recommendations for this? Oh, I do. You know I do, because I told them to you earlier. Uh, oh, mine is probably, probably going to be echoed by everybody here, uh, but... I vertigo clearly. I mean, huge influence on the way that this movie plays out and clearly very many direct references. Um, but also, and 
I hope I'm in the right company to be referencing this. Your name. Jason, hello. Hello. This was also uh, on my recommendation list. Hell yeah. Aaron gave me shit for that. He's like, man, it's nothing. It's nothing like your name. And I'm like, that's what makes you, it. Aaron. That's what makes it a good recommendation because it is so disparate from the tone of this movie, but with a lot of the same ideas and themes. I, I, I think you're right. I, I like joking around with the idea of like recommending a movie that's thematically pretty similar, but just like complete. I'm just imagining like my dad sees 12 monkeys and I was like, Oh, I had a good time watching that movie. You know, any other movies like that? You, you host a movie podcast. Cool. There's a little <laughs> film called your name, an anime film from a few years. That's, ago. that's a like, real fucked up, real fucked up way to imagine referencing movie or like referring people to movies or recommending them. That's kind of a fucked up way. It's like, would my dad do that? No, my dad wouldn't do that. My dad would watch, he, he'd fucking watch the same seven Italian comedies from 1969. That's all he watches. He's not going to watch anything based on a recommendation I give him. Your dad watches the same seven Italian comedies. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Actually. I mean, they're not, they're not bad movies, yeah. <laughs> but they're the same seven ones for like 40 years. Any other recs <laughs> other than your name? Um, pretty surface level comp here, but I feel more uh, emboldened given that The Last Jedi uh, came up earlier in the episode. Uh, Looper is another uh, Bruce Willis, uh, uh, a Bruno feature. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's another Bruno time hopping feature. I'm in the camp that likes Looper. I know not everybody does. Um, I love Looper. Very pro Looper. Nice. All right. You guys had a, uh, a, sorry to interrupt you, Cody, but Jason and Seth, no. you had a uh, website at one point dedicated to your love of Looper, and I believe it was media like it. Uh, it was, was it- uh, I mean, obliquely, it was named like I. We both became a little bit obsessed with that movie after it came out, and I uh, really fell in love with their design of the blunderbuss in that because it just looks like a long paper towel roll, and uh, and how like that is the main weapon uh, that people use, and that it's called the blunderbuss, and it was just like that really cool in- interplay of like old timey weapon name with really cool tech. So we ended up creating a, a WordPress blog called blunder. I think it was blunder busted. No blunder. We were the Blunderbusters. Yeah. Blunderbusters. Blunder right. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and we wrote about video games for like a year. I ended up getting one piece published in a, like a, an educational uh, publication out of that. It was just SEO. It wasn't like we had built a whole lot of name recognition or dominance, but it was a good place to get thoughts out and to like, follow games back in like early college days i, uh, I didn't know i forgot that i told you about that harry i, I think used, i might have found it i use blunderbusters uh as a college design project so i have a mock magazine cover if we were ever to uh publish it <laughs> I, I remember Now's that i think time. the cover is i think the cover is grand theft auto 5 yep it was that was our first uh our first cover <laughs> That was going to be our first exclusive deep cut feature. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you guys interviewed the Housers. I'm I'm surprised yeah. that they answered your call, but uh, that's pretty impressive. Hey man, you gotta you gotta keep keep yeah. eyes open if you want great Shake guests to try love. <laughs> uh, yes, Looper hi- highly recommended. I think by pretty much everyone here. Aaron has been suspiciously quiet about Looper. It's fine. I haven't seen it since. I remember like in a lot since it came out. I have not seen it since then. I uh, maybe I would like it more. Maybe I'd like it less. I don't know. That transition where they try to sell you that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt turns into Bruce Willis is one of the funniest montages in movie history. <laughs> it is wildly good. The the greasy, like, chin-length hair. Ugh. Oh, the hair. You don't uh, like the fake nose? 
That's I love fine. the fa- I love all the prosthesis in that movie on everybody's face that gets it. But like that specific because they try to play it off real like oh it's in motion people won't like super notice it. I feel like I feel like that was an area where Ryan Johnson and the and the producers of the film were at odds a little bit. Maybe the editing too because like clearly you can very clearly tell that that is not Joseph Gordon-Levitt and it's not Bruce Willis. It is some third being entirely. And it's just because that shot sticks around a little bit too long. Uh, Cody, did you have any other recommendations after Looper? Nope. Seth, did you have any recommendations on what people should watch? Any movies, I guess, that that while you were watching this, you thought, hmm, this is kind of like blank. Well, I mean, we've mentioned it, you know, a bazillion times, but Terminator was the, was the movie that came to mind. Uh, and I think we talked about it too, that it felt, it felt like a very eighties movie for a movie made in the nineties. So Terminator, like, I don't know why you would watch, listen to this podcast if you haven't already seen Terminator. (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, I take that as slander because I only watched T2 for the first time, like end of last year. So if you want to rescind that officially, I'd appreciate our public uh, needs a statement. That's not I, you. You attempted to see T two a couple of times and were uh, deterred as if fate Arnold itself. Schwarzenegger literally thwarted you from watching T two. Listen, I got cucked by Arnie Schwarzenegger. You guys, what you got T cucked? That's I'm not gonna go with that. <laughs> uh, I've, I've I've got recommendations. <laughs> we we can change the subject pretty quick from that. Uh, I've got recommendations. Um, I will say that uh, you should go check out. Uh, a lot of Monty Python stuff. If you have not, if you have, you know, if you've seen uh, maybe one or two of their movies, uh, go check out some Monty Python flying circus. Uh, to me, personal opinion, it is kind of like undisputedly still the best sketch comedy show. Uh, maybe the best comedy TV show, although there's one or two that are kind of in contention there. Um, it's great. I think specifically in, in regard to Terry Gilliam's work, I think his animation style, the work that he did there set the stage for um pretty much any sort of weird out there, similar stuff in a lot of sketch comedy to come. Um, pretty much all the uh, seasons of flying circus. I believe there's four of them. I think they all pulled up pretty well. Um, if you're specifically looking for Terry Gilliam, uh, he has a short film uh, from before his time with Monty Python called story time. It is about nine minutes long. I think it's three different sketches and it is very, very, very good. Um, I don't know if any, there's anything terribly problematic in there, but for the most part, my memory is that holds up very well. Uh, and I would recommend it specifically if you're also going to see La Jete, you're on a short film kick, go watch uh, Storytime. It is very, very good. Uh, and then lastly, uh, because Terry Gilliam is a member of Monty Python and is also uh, in the string of uh, famous uh, actors and directors and whatnot that uh, were kind of radical in their youth and become dumb uh, over the years, I would also recommend not Googling anything he said over the past like five or ten years. Uh, just watch his movies pretend he's fine because uh, <laughs> he said some very dumb shit over the past like five years so don't worry about it if you want or do i guess but yeah those are my recommendations you heard it here first uh terry gilliam canceled i will fight him in public if i see him yes um i don't have very many recommendations other than what have been at um already mentioned i would say uh specifically you should go see vertigo at the heights they play it on 70 millimeter every year i go every year uh um, it's amazing. It's like the perfect experience of seeing that movie. Um, I don't know when they're, they've rescheduled it. I don't remember until when, I think it might be September. It was scheduled for April. Um, so you should go see that. Uh, you should also play, 
uh, near automata chrono trigger and Titanfall two. Just to just to slip those in there, you know, we have to represent our interests. He got us again, ladies and gentlemen. He dropped the near automata reference. Are those related? To t- I guess those are kind of twelve. Well, sci-fi. I guess there are a lot of connecting they're, strands. They there. are my recommendations. Uh, if for fans of Twelve Monkeys, unimpeachable. I'm gonna ref- I'm gonna uh, recommend um, uh, Twelve Angry Men, uh, Twelve Years a Slave, Short Term Twelve, uh, j- just just a few more in the same series. Um, if you, if you're looking to round out your better knowledge of of Bruce Willis as you know in, in time travel movies. Um, all right, so this has been our episode on uh, Twelve Monkeys. Uh, thank you again, Seth, for joining us for this uh, wonderful, beautiful episode. Is there anything you'd like us to plug or mention uh, in this uh, as we close out? Uh, no, uh, just, you know, if you want to share your thoughts, uh, again, you can find me at, uh, at S N Zarate, Z A R A T E on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, donate to your local food bank if you can. Fuck yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of links for Minneapolis area ones, but wherever you are, uh, donate, donate something, donate money, donate food, get in touch. Um, we've plugged before, uh, the Trilon is currently selling, uh, discount cards and frequency cards for when, after, after they open, hopefully again, this, this fall, um, I am Jason Daphnis. I, you can find me at Nintendoofus on Twitter. Our podcast is Trilove and you can find us at Trilove podcast. You can find the Trilon themselves at Trilon cinema across all social media platforms. I'm Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Chitaki Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me at RB Please. Fuck the bozos. <laughs> <laughs>